Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 351, Collapse. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Brian, Christine, and Michael for signing up already. I wonder if Canute could see what was coming. All the signs were right there in front of him. Everything was starting to line up. But was he actually putting it together? Anger in Norway was reaching a boiling point over the austerity policies and heavy enforcement imposed by Elf Gifu and Canute's son, Swain. And as such, armed rebellion was just around the corner. Furthermore, Swain, who was now about 16 or 17 years old, was probably starting to make his own decisions as a ruler. And from what we hear from Snorri about the laws during this period, Swain probably needed some better advisors. The young king was seizing the inheritance of any person that he declared an outlaw. He was also demanding that all farmers give him substantial quantities of malt, ox meat, and butter every Christmas. And he declared that if anyone left the kingdom without his permission, their lands would be seized by the crown. Norway was experiencing a crackdown, and the Norse were not going to put up with much more. But was Canute even aware of the crisis? Was news of this even reaching him, given that people were literally being barred from leaving the country? And then you have Normandy. Canute had completely misjudged his nephew, Duke Robert. He had failed to realize that when Robert said that Edward should be sitting on the English throne, he wasn't asking. And when Canute didn't take the hint, Robert began constructing an invasion fleet. And then you had the issue of southern Wales. King Riddick ap Eystein had been consolidating power in the region. And by this point, he held the thrones of Morganwig, Glywysing, and De Highbarth. And he also exercised authority over Powys. King Riddick was becoming something of a big deal, and it appears that Canute was aware of this one, because he had joined forces with King Citric Silkbeard of Dublin to raid Wales in 1030. But that being said, our sources don't tell us much more than that. However, it appears that the Irish Sea remained an exposed flank for King Riddick's growing kingdom, because only three years later, in 1033, King Riddick was slain by the Irish. Unfortunately, we aren't told anything else, just that the Irish killed him. In the aftermath, the multi-kingdom domain that Riddick had built broke up. De Highbarth returned to the rule of his local dynasty under King Hul and his brother, King Meredith, who were both great-grandsons of old King Hul Thaw. And the regions of Morganwig and Glywysing were passed to Riddick's son, Gruffith. And this devolution set Wales on the path to war. And it was a war that was right on the western border of England, which almost certainly was going to be an issue for Canute. And yet, with all of this happening, the contemporary English records are silent. So silent that perhaps they're evidence that Canute had no idea what was coming at all. And that is entirely possible. Canute governed a vast territory, and he ruled it in the Scandinavian fashion meaning he delegated day-to-day governance to his underlings. And in that circumstance, it would be easy to lose touch. There was also the fact that he just had a lot of balls up in the air at any given moment in his almost empire. 
For example, Canute very well may have been just focused on Scotland, since they'd only recently come under his umbrella. Or maybe he was occupied with his growing friendship with the Holy Roman Emperor. Furthermore, there's a good chance that he might have had his hands full with England itself, since the kingdom had significant issues of its own. Godwin was probably starting to look like a ruler in the eyes of the nobles, thanks to literally years of him acting as a de facto king, which would be a significant problem for Canute's legitimacy. You also had Queen Emma's growing authority, which was also expanding in the vacuum that was provided by Canute's many absences. Then you had whatever was going on with his other son, Harold Harefoot. And, don't forget, you also had that giant wildfire, and dealing with the consequences of that would have been a huge task, and rebuilding burned-out shires may have grabbed a lot of Canute's attention. And that's just politics. There was also Canute's personal life. And yeah, he had one of those. Canute was a person. He wasn't just a political machine. And people like to do things other than constant political wrangling. So it's possible that as things were going nuts, he was doing many of the things that nobles do, like going hunting or feasting, or maybe even taking the occasional sick day. The point is, Canute was a human being, and there was only so much of him to go around. So if he didn't see this coming, it might not be all that surprising. But in 1033, events were set into motion, and the empire that should have been, the empire that should have made England part of the Scandinavian world, started to unravel before it even began. And the unraveling began with the exiled claimant to the throne, Edward Atheling, along with his brother, Alfred Atheling, and a whole fleet of Normans when they unfurled their sails and set course for England, allowing the abundant channel winds to drive them forward. This fleet was an existential threat to Canute's right to rule, and to Canute's dynasty in general. Or at least it would have been if the wind was cooperating. But it wasn't. Shortly after leaving the harbor, the Norman fleet were caught up in a gale that was blowing in the wrong direction. And as such, they soon found themselves heading where they didn't want to go. Instead of going north to England, the ships were driven west to Brittany. And this wouldn't be the first nor the last time that England's fortunes were changed by an unseasonable wind. And for the Athelings, this was a catastrophic turn of events. They were clear about their claims and their goals, and taking a trip to Brittany was not on that list. But it turns out it kind of was on the list for the Normans. Do you remember when Robert kicked up a civil war against his brother, Duke Richard III of Normandy? And how even though Robert ended up becoming the Duke of Normandy, it still tore the duchy apart. Well, one consequence of that war, and one of the signs of the tremendous damage that the Civil War did to the House of Normandy, was what happened with Brittany. Brittany had been a subject to the Normans for quite some time. In fact, their duke was a member of the House of Normandy. His name was Duke Alan III, and he was a cousin of Duke Robert. And when Robert launched that Civil War, Duke Alan saw his chance and he used the ensuing chaos to free Brittany from Norman control and assert its right to be ruled as an independent duchy. And once Robert became the Duke of Normandy, that fact was not sitting all that well with him. And as we already know, Robert had no qualms with fighting against family members, so the fact that Alan was his cousin wasn't going to slow him down one bit. 
And as such, the two duchies were already in open conflict, with at least one land battle having taken place. So when that rogue wind carried the Norman fleet west, rather than north, well, they decided to make some lemonade. There were already land forces that were available and positioned in opposition of Duke Alan III. So maybe the presence of a combined land and naval fight might just be the thing to put this all to bed. So the fleet was redirected to Mont Saint-Michel. And with the threatening sight of the Norman fleet in full view of everyone, Duke Robert began to negotiate a peace treaty with his cousin, Duke Alan III. And get this. This peace treaty was mediated by their uncle, the Archbishop of Rouen, because this fight was an all-House of Normandy affair. And honestly, that's a theme that you're going to hear repeatedly as the story goes on, because this family just can't stop fighting amongst themselves. But at any rate, that is how Edward and Alfred ended up hanging out in Brittany, rather than, you know, conquering England. And here's the weirdest part about this story. There's a lot of contemporary material about Edward that suggests that he wasn't all that keen on becoming the King of England, which honestly is totally reasonable. That job seems like it's way more of a headache than it's worth. But despite that, he still set sail with an invasion fleet. And not only that, but even after it went completely pear-shaped and the invasion was called off, he was still signing charters as the King of the English, including one that he signed during his stay at Mont Saint-Michel. And that's a weird thing to write when you aren't the king of the English and you don't necessarily even want the job. So what was going on there? Well, remember, Edward and his little brother had been living in France for a very long time. And they'd been able to do that thanks to the largesse of a number of powerful nobles. Nobles who Edward now owed a lot of favors to. And he wouldn't be able to repay them if he continued to just be some guy without a homeland. Edward might not have wanted a kingdom, but he needed one, and that need was likely becoming more urgent by the year. And back in England, I'm sure that Canute realized that things could have easily gone the other way. Maybe he would have managed to defeat that fleet, but that wasn't guaranteed, and the fact that he had a neighbor come within a hair's breadth of invading was a bad sign. And actually, this near miss might have inspired Canute to try and soothe things over with Duke Robert of Normandy. According to the 11th century historian Ralph Glaber, King Canute tried to rebuild his bonds with the House of Normandy by marrying his sister to Duke Robert. Adam of Bremen also writes that Canute arranged a marriage between his sister, who Adam names Estrid, and the Duke of Normandy. Though looking at the timing and the details, he appears to have mistook which Duke of Normandy he was talking about. He mistook Robert for Richard. But taking these accounts together, it does appear that Canute arranged a marriage between his sister, Estrid, and Duke Robert of Normandy. Which is entirely possible. While Duke Robert did have a concubine, Herleva, the tanner's daughter that we spoke about a few episodes back, she had no legitimate standing. And as such, Robert was still single as far as Western European politics were concerned. And think about what that tells us. If these scribes are correct, and if the king of England, Denmark, Norway, and parts of Sweden was so worried about the Normans that he married his sister to their duke, well, that was a bad sign for his dynasty and for his grip on power. 
And just as Canute was making a move that revealed significant political weakness, Norway turned downright murderous. In 1033, according to the Heimskringla, Swain was forced to fight off an entire fleet that was attempting to install Trigva on the Norse throne. And here's the interesting thing about that. Trigva claimed legitimacy to the Norse throne through his alleged father, Olaf Trygvason. Now, Olaf Trygvason was a previous Norse king, but he wasn't the same person as old King Olaf Haraldson, who we'd spoken about recently. No, Trygvason was an earlier Olaf. An Olaf who only ruled for about five years, because pretty much everyone hated him. Why? This Olaf converted to Christianity, and he pushed that conversion on his subjects, which had a mixed reception. I also read one account that claimed he would take his noble wives for his sorceries. Yeah. But, to be fair, I'm stuck here in coronavirus quarantine, and I can't get my hands on a translation of what the author was referring to. And that is the only place I've read that. And I read another saga that claimed that it was actually Olaf's rival who did that. So I can't say for certain what happened here, given my current access to materials. But whether or not he was basically King Harvey Weinstein, the fact remains, he faced stiff opposition while he was ruling. And after five years, in the year 1000, King Olaf was killed in battle by a combined fleet that even included our old friend Eric Lathier. So yeah, Olaf Tryggvason wasn't the most popular guy in the world while he was still alive. And yet his son thought that he'd be better on the throne than Swain. And he had a whole army that was willing to fight to make that happen. So clearly, he wasn't the only one who felt that way. And that's a bad sign for Swain. Now eventually, Swain's army did manage to kill Trigva in battle. And thus, Swain maintained the Danish hold on Norway. Kind of. By winter of 1033, King Swain and his regent mother, Elf Gifu, weren't actually able to stay in their capital of Throndheim. The public had turned so rebellious that they'd abandoned the city and fled south to more friendly territory in hopes of holding on to power. But it's not clear how much power those two had left in Norway at this point. And it's likely that Norway was functionally being governed by their jarls, regardless of whatever Swain Knutsen was saying. And just like that, Knut's empire was on the edge of collapse. In the following year of 1034, an odd story pops up about Canute's ally, King Citric Silkbeard of Dublin. Now, these two had engaged in at least one successful joint military campaign, and possibly several. And we also have records that suggest that Citric spent time in Canute's court. So it appears that these two were allies, or at least that Canute was exercising a degree of overlordship over Dublin. But in 1034, we're told that King Citric's son went on pilgrimage to Rome. And while he was in transit, he was killed by the English. So what the hell happened there? We don't know. And I guess we could look to the Chronicle for answers, except the Chronicle has spent the last three years giving us nothing but religious obituaries. And sure enough, the entry for this year is 1034, this year died Bishop Etheric, who lies at Ramsey. Well, that's good to know, just in case we wanted to find Etheric's bones. And I'm sure that whole thing about the English murdering a prince was just accidentally left out, and absolutely nothing else important happened in 1034 that involved the English. Right? 
Well, funny story. We have this charter dated to 1034, and in it, Canute gives the monks of Sherborne worldly gifts with the specific hope that these gifts will gain him redemption in the afterlife and that they will absolve him of his crimes. And then, as part of the charter, the monks are directed to sing psalms and celebrate masses specifically to curry favor with the Almighty so that when Canute dies, he can get into heaven. Now, when I was a boy in Catholic school, I had a priest who used to joke about how often he'd see people return to the church and become anxiously devout when they reached the last years of their life, either through age or illness. He called it studying for your finals. And Canute, at this point, would have only been about 44 years old. And like we talked about ages ago, our impression that people only lived a short while is largely due to the fact that so many people died early in life, and thus the average looks really grim. But if you made it past your 20s, especially if you were wealthy, like Canute was, well, your chances of reaching old age were surprisingly good. So this sudden devotion at a relatively stable age is why so many scholars see this charter as evidence that Canute was gravely ill by 1034. An illness serious enough that he was preparing himself for death. And actually, William of Jumiege, who was a contemporary scribe, though not in England, claimed that Canute was indeed terribly ill at this point. But, of course, when we investigate the records taken by English scribes, they don't say anything about an illness. In fact, their accounts would give you the impression that absolutely nothing was happening during this period. And that silence by the scribes wasn't purely limited to maintaining Canute's privacy and warding off any potential HIPAA complaints. They were also leaving other really important things out of the official record. You see, it turns out that in Norway, things had somehow managed to get even worse. Which is impressive, considering that Elf Gifu and Swain Knutsen had managed to enrage the Norse to such a degree that they'd already been forced to flee from the capital. Well, in 1034, suddenly it wasn't just an uprising by local Norse subjects who were rebelling against austerity practices and the harshness of Danish rule. Now, they had a leader. Do you remember King Olaf Haraldsson? Not the Harvey Weinstein one, but the more recent one who seized Norway, but who made so many enemies that he ended up losing all support of the local population and had to flee Norway. And then when he tried to return, the local Norse still hated him so much that they fought him and then turned the kingdom over to the Danish king Canute. That Olaf. Well, after years of living under the tender mercies of Elf Gifu and Swain, the Norse were starting to rethink their position on Olaf. And by this point, they were starting to feel downright nostalgic. And that's not an exaggeration. The Norse at this point were starting to dedicate cults to him, and he became so popular that he was declared the eternal king of Norway. The Norse loved them some Olaf Haraldsson. But the problem was that he was dead, and he can't really be ruled by a dead guy. At least, not very well. But that being said, this whole Elf Gifu Swain affair had pushed the Norse to a breaking point. And it was so bad they were even writing poems about it. Here's the skald Sigvader, who is writing during this period. Quote, Elf Gifu's time, long will the young man remember when they at home ate ox's food, and like goats ate rind. End quote. Yeah, the Norse were so pissed, they were starting to write diss tracks about Elf Gifu. So when Olaf Haraldsson's adolescent son, Magnus, landed in Norway, 
well, pretty much all the North sided with him immediately. Now, this kid was about 10 or 11 years old. He was also illegitimate. But whatever, anything was better than eating garbage. So they signed right up. And what few allies Elfgifu and Swain had in southern Norway abandoned them. And the mother-son dream team were forced to flee across the sea to Denmark. And Magnus, the adolescent exile, became King Magnus of Norway. Now, when Elfgifu and Swain arrived in the Danish court of King Harthacanut, Swain begged his half-brother for support. The fact was, he wasn't ready to give up the Norse throne. And he just needed fighters to help him put down the rebels. And he knew that Denmark had plenty of fighters. But it seems that Harthacanut looked at what his half-brother had done and the widespread popular opposition to his rule. And he determined that a Danish invasion force wouldn't be enough to defeat King Magnus and pretty much all of Norway. Or at least, a Danish force wouldn't be able to do it alone. So he sent a messenger to their father, King Canute, and asked him for help. Then, they waited. But Canute already had a lot on his plate. He wasn't just sick, he also had serious problems on his borders. Do you remember the joint kings Hul and his brother King Meredith? They're the rulers of the kingdom of Dehybarth, which covers southwestern Wales. Well, in 1034, a year after they took the throne, they became locked in a bitter war for supremacy against the sons of old King Riddick, who ruled over much of southeastern Wales. And we're told that on the following year of 1035, so right at about the same point that Swain and Harthacanute sought their father's help, well, we're told that one of the sons of Riddick, specifically Caradog Ap Riddick, was killed. And that isn't all surprising, considering the conflict that was raging and his position on the line of succession. But what is surprising is who killed him. Caradog was killed by the English. So was Canute getting involved in his neighbor's wars? It's hard to say, because the English records refuse to talk about it. But it's clear that multiple kingdoms on the island were now in the midst of a hot conflict. Furthermore, on that same year, English relations with Normandy also hit a breaking point. It turned out that the marriage between Duke Robert and Estrid wasn't going to do the trick. And I suppose the first sign was the fact that the two of them didn't have any children together, unlike Robert and his concubine. But then Robert made his feelings crystal clear when he set Estrid aside entirely. And that was a deliberately provocative move. And Robert must have known that he was setting his duchy on the path to war. And perhaps that was what he wanted. Perhaps he felt that Canute was weak enough that he could be directly challenged. Though if that's the case, then something appears to have spooked the Duke. Because Ralph Glaber tells us that immediately after setting Estrid aside, Duke Robert fled his duchy and went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, purportedly to escape Canute's wrath. But then again, when we look at William of Jumiege, we're given a different impression of this event. Far from being a source of fear and wrathful retribution, William tells us that Canute, laid low by his illness, had reached out and offered to grant half of the kingdom to the sons of Athelred in order to establish peace with Duke Robert and Normandy. Unfortunately, the scribes who were closest to Canute completely ignored this period of his reign, so it's difficult to know precisely what happened here and why. But now it does seem clear that Canute was terribly ill at this point. 
And it's actually possible that both scribes are accurately recounting the events. Because in early summer of 1035, Duke Robert began to return to Normandy. And you can imagine that might have been because any fears that he had were allayed, perhaps because he received word of Canute's offer. We can't know for certain. Unfortunately for Robert, though, as he traveled, he also started to feel a little ill. And then a lot more ill. And soon, much like Canute, Duke Robert was deathly ill from some unnamed sickness. And on July 2nd of 1035, in Nicaea, while he was trying to return to Normandy, Duke Robert died. And that must have been a bit of incredibly welcome news to Canute. Robert had been a formidable Duke of Normandy, and after years of internal conflict, he had finally consolidated his grip on power over the duchy. If they went to war, he would have been able to bring the full weight of the Norman military against England. But now he was dead, and his only heir was an illegitimate seven-year-old boy named William, or as some were beginning to call him, William the Bastard. This had succession crisis written all over it. And even if this boy successfully claimed the duchy, would this new Duke William really want to risk open war with England at a time like this? Probably not. And that meant that at last, Canute likely had enough time to deal with the absolute shitstorm that his son and ex-wife had set off in Scandinavia. But then again, he was still very sick. And the campaigning season was already half over. So if he was making any plans for conquest they are probably due to take place on the following year. So for now, Swain would have to wait. But it turns out that Swain didn't have the luxury of time, because he also found himself gravely ill. And by 1035, the exiled teenager died in Denmark, probably still waiting for word from his father on the counterattack against King Magnus. And while travel from Scandinavia to England only took a few days, King Canute might never have heard of his son's death, because on November 12th of 1035, the reign of one of the most powerful kings of England came abruptly to an end. Canute, king of England, Denmark, parts of Sweden, sometimes Norway, and overlord of Scotland and probably Dublin and the Isle of Man, died at Shaftesbury in Dorsetshire. He was about 45 years old, and now England, just like Normandy, had a succession crisis on their hands. And Canute's dynasty was in shambles. The ruling order which had consolidated so much of the West into an empire now teetered on the edge of collapse. All because of a sickness. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can always reach us on social media. We're pretty much all over the place. And you can find links to all of those sites in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.